Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Even though Congress won't be back in town for another few weeks, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy have agreed to a continuing resolution to keep the government open while talking about a broader deal to avert a government shutdown over the longer term. Uh, The Commission to Reform the Pentagon's Planning, Programming, Budgeting, Execution, or PPBE process, chaired by former Pentagon Comptroller and one-time Washington Roundtable regular Bob Hale has issued its 200-page interim report with 13 recommendations that already have been embraced by Deputy Defense Secretary Kath Hicks. Republican Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville is maintaining his holds on military promotions, now leaving the Army, Navy, and Marines without chiefs and the Air Force in a bind as its chief has been tapped to become the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, but not yet confirmed uh, in the job. Ukraine is gaining ground and Russia is facing tectonic economic problems, but Kiev still needs more help as U.S. public uh, interest in supporting the country weakens. And a landmark meeting this week as President Biden hosts Japan's and South Korea's leaders at Camp David as Taiwan's vice president arrives in the United States, sparking Beijing's ire. Joining us today, as they do every week, to review the week in Washington and around the world, our former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend of the Center for a New American Security and the host uh, and the co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast, a must for anybody interested in the transatlantic relationship. Our producer, Chris Cervello, a retired United States Navy commander and public affairs officer, who is also the co-founder of the Provision Advisors PR firm, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Uh, Two of our usual number, Michael Herson of American Defense International and Dr. Patrick Cronin uh, of the Hudson Institute Think Tank are uh, off or on travel uh, this week. Everybody, welcome back uh, to uh, the program, Dove, uh, with Michael uh, off. You're in the lead uh, hot seat. A couple of great pieces, by the way, Uh, one in uh, The Hill, uh, where you uh, maintain that we need to stay the course on helping Ukraine, and another in The Messenger, uh, that U.S. US leadership is at risk if we don't pass the National Defense Authorization Act. Start us off, uh, Schumer and McCarthy have an agreement on a temporary uh, CR, noting that uh, of the 12 appropriations, measures, only the military construction and veterans uh, affairs uh, has passed. Where, where are we and what does all of this mean uh, in the intercession in anticipation of folks coming back into Washington and what's at stake? Schumer and, and McCarthy uh, have uh, agreed, or at least Schumer reported they agreed, on uh, uh, a, a continuing resolution that would carry them into December. And since the uh, last year's or rather earlier this year's agreement on on the debt ceiling provided that uh, all 12 appropriations have to be approved by January 1st or else you cut the fiscal 23 budget by 1%, um, that clearly allows some time to get those appropriations approved. Um, Now, on the face of that, that's pretty good. Uh, there are some issues, though. Uh, what what worries me a lot is that the extreme Republican right uh, has uh, a little bit of time to uh, really pressure McCarthy. Remember, he's only got four votes that that uh, a majority of that. He doesn't really want to rely just on Democratic votes 
because the last time he did that, the Republic, the extremists on the right pretty much said that would be the last time he's speaker if he tried it again. Um, now, uh, those folks are quite ready to bring the government down. Uh, I'd say that the agreement between Schumer and McCarthy lowers the likelihood that that'll happen, but it doesn't eliminate the likelihood. And quite frankly, look at how Schumer made his announcement. He did it on MSNBC, which is anathema to the right wing. Right. So it looks like he was bragging and it looks like he had outsmarted McCarthy. That is not going to help McCarthy. And it's certainly not going to help him win uh, over those uh right wingers who, as I say, and as as Michael has said, week after week, um, really don't care if the government doesn't function. And it only takes uh, one vote uh, to vacate the speaker. Right. I mean, that's one of the things that, in the 15 that's right. rounds of voting that, that McCarthy right. had to agree and, to. And you got to remember something else. And it's something that I, I wrote about this week. You know, if you look at the Ukraine supplemental, because I see that as a proxy for the behavior of the right and, and its influence of the extreme right and its influence on the rest of the Republican caucus in the House. Matt Getz makes a, a, a puts out a proposal to cut off Ukraine aid. This is in February. He gets 10 votes. The next time he does it, he gets 70 votes. And if he were to try it again, he probably would get he could well get the majority of the caucus. The caucus is much more sympathetic to the extreme right than I think we've realized. And that's why I think this deal with Schumer and the way Schumer put it out means that this ain't over till it's over. Well, I mean, you can uh, cross your uh, fingers and hope that it's uh, true, but it's Washington uh, or that it's real or tangible. But it ain't, uh, as you said, it ain't over <laughs> until uh, it's uh, over. Um, Chris, you wanted to dive in uh, with a question of your own? Well, um, I, I guess I would just ask Dove and really the, the group at large. I mean, is it that the caucus is having greater influence or is it that the american public writ large is starting to lose i won't say support but i think interest we've talked about this a couple times on the show that i think that if you were to pin people down they are supportive but i think that as um the ukraine conflict has fallen off the front pages and as the administration sort of gets pulled in other directions um that overall interest i think is what is reflected by by some of this in addition to uh the politics that uh dove rightly talks about you have the trump circus uh that's going on you've got uh climate uh issues and fires and hawaii and you know climate so i mean there are a lot of other things that are competing for people's attention i'm sorry go ahead Duff. yeah i was just gonna say chris is right but you you got to think about how the extreme right views the behavior of the American public, they may well conclude that they're building up a head of steam. And so while you're right, there's a lot to divert uh, to divert the administration. And look, I mean, the big story in the last couple of days has nothing to do with any of this. It has to do with Korea and Japan, quite frankly. That's above the fold now in the newspapers. Uh, clearly, the Biden administration has a lot on its plate and has trouble walking and chewing gum at the best of times. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, as you just said, Vago, uh, this is Washington. And we've got a few weeks before the Congress reconvenes. Um, and I doubt very much whether they'll get a CR the first week they're back. 
uh, that gives the Republican extreme right, the, the, the Patriot Caucus, the, uh, the, the ability to essentially pin McCarthy in a corner and say, you're not going to do this. Uh, it will be uh, very interesting. Uh, Jill, I want to go to uh, PBE, uh, PPBE uh, in a moment and get that over with before we get to the broader uh, strategic uh, d- discussion. But Jim, do you do you see at all a weakening uh, among anybody in the administration you're talking to, uh, as well as uh, folks on the Hill, uh, sort of a weakening of support for Ukraine because the administration has been uh, very staunch about it and everybody I talk about it, you know, says, look, we're going to keep doing this as long as long as it takes. Do you see any softening of support? Well, you know, it's 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 an interesting question. It's an important question. I don't see that publicly, the public face of the administration, the Vilnius summit speeches, things that that uh, Blinken might say, others, there's no weakening at all. You know, they're still, you know, they're still saying the same stuff coming out of the White House about not one inch, you know, and what was said at Vilnius. But there has always been a bit of an undercurrent. And we've always tried to figure out, so who is this? Either within the NSC staff or within the administration at, at, a, at a senior level, not the topmost, but at a senior level where they're, they're you know, they're kind of looking at their watches. They've got their, they've, they're, they're testing which way the wind is blowing politically. I mean, they've got other other priorities uh, and another lens that they're looking at Ukraine through. And it's the political lens. It's a lot of what Michael and Dove and, and everyone has been saying for weeks now about, about the situation and the race between the clock on the one hand, the political clock, and what's happening on the battlefield. So there is this undercurrent and every now and then it pops up. And I think we right. saw that a little bit uh, over the past 24 hours, there were some some people in the so-called intel community talking about how slow the offensive is going to be and how they won't be able to achieve various goals. You know, a lot right. of stuff that we've heard before, but why is that now popped up? And finally, you know, there was also uh, related to this, uh, one of the, the very close uh, advisor, chief of staff to the section um, at a, a Norwegian uh, roundtable, a uh, public roundtable was talking about all the various options. I think, the, I think the whole panel was talking about the various options that could play out in Ukraine, including making a deal that involved giving up some Ukraine land. And of course, right. that came out of the mouth of a very close associate and, and, and official there at NATO, and that caused a big firestorm. You know, and I think that was just, you know, a lot of taking out of context and, and, and other things, too. That's not what the section thinks. And I don't think that's what necessarily this official thinks. But but it just goes to show you that there is this kind of bubbling within official circles on both sides of the Atlantic. It flares up every now and then. And, and that's when leadership has got to come in to tamp down those those embers, if you will, and to keep us heading forward. And that's going to be an unending job for Biden and his most senior people. Um, I want to uh, get to that, uh, discuss that uh, in greater detail uh, in a moment, but I have to go back to PP, uh, B, uh, and E and just get that out because otherwise there's just no show flow uh, to uh, to do uh, without that. But before uh, we go uh, further, uh, just a quick word from our sponsors, HII sponsors our global coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE. Aerospace sponsors are air and naval uh, coverage. Uh, Dove, uh, you were a former comptroller, so uh, you were the one who added the E to uh, PPBE. Uh, 
uh, it was just PPB before that, uh, and our mutual friend Bob Hale chaired uh, this group, uh, and former Undersecretary of Acquisition and Sustainment Ellen Lord uh, was uh, the vice chair on what was a, a star-studded panel. They've come up with uh, their uh, recommendations. Final recommendations will be out in March. Uh, Deputy Secretary Hicks has already said the department would embrace these recommendations. What do you make of them as somebody... Uh, right. I mean, because they say there are two kinds of people, people who visit PPBE on others and those who have it visited upon them. Well, uh, I think there are about a dozen key recommendations uh, and um, some of them are totally in the weeds for just programmers and budgeteers and others uh, involve the Congress. And uh, I think all of them make a lot of sense. Uh, some of them have been around for a long time, and, th and that's not to knock the commission. It's important to resurface those. For example, the whole problem of reprogramming and, and the fact that the levels of reprogramming, which means moving monies around from one program to another, are very, very low and are quite difficult to implement uh, without lots and lots of congressional approval if they get it and if it's not too delayed which is crazy at a time when we're talking about Moore's law being outpaced by the development of things like AI. Those are good recommendations. My concern is first, will DOD uh, really go ahead with some of the recommendations it's made itself for itself, for rather for DOD, uh, for example, finally aligning uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, controller and uh, programmers simply uh, documentation and, and their, their, uh, their information and their systems, their IT systems have yet to be consolidated. It's something we talked about 20 odd years ago. Will it actually happen? I know Catholics wants to make it happen, but will the bureaucracy make it happen? That's on one side. And the other side is all these suggestions for the Congress have been made to the Congress before, like, for instance, a two-year budget. The Congressional Budget Office has been pushing that virtually since the CBO was created. It hasn't happened because the appropriators and the appropriations staff in particular don't want to lose control. So I'm hoping that when Kath Hicks tells the bureaucracy to jump, they'll ask her how high. That will already help significantly make the system more up-to-date simpler, by the way, the justification books that come out when the budget comes out are long, complicated, and clearly can be clarified. Um, but on the congressional side, uh, I don't know if, if Mike were here, he might disagree with me, but it seems to me that that's still a long haul. Um, I, I remember, Dove, uh, when you uh, became comptroller, you would have these roundtables with reporters uh, on a very regular basis. Uh, and you said, look, you know, we've got 900 systems and my goal is to consolidate these uh, down. And then I remember your last meeting with uh, us, uh, all of us. And you said, my tenure has been a failure because we have 400 more financial management systems or whatever the number was, the characteristic candor that you uh, brought to the job. Uh, Jim and uh, Chris, really quick, because both of you have interacted with the system uh, as well. Uh, Jim, you spend many, many, many years of your life uh, in the Pentagon, uh, you know, dealing with 
programming and budgeting, uh, especially on international programs and, and aid and assistance and support and crises. Uh, and, and you as well, Chris, working for a lot of senior uh, leaders who had to navigate that process. Just a quick take from uh, both of you. I mean, just for the audience on Monday, Bob Hale is going to be joining us and we're going to have a discussion a little bit on, on the takeaways and what's to come uh, next as well. He's been very, uh, very kind to give us uh, some of his time. Go ahead, Jim and, and Chris, give us your quick takes. Well, the, the only thing I would say, and I don't want to sound like some jaundiced, you know, old army kind of guy here, but uh but, you know, you'll, we will never get it perfect. We will never fix everything. Um, you know, this is something that has been uh, the, the, the uh, perpetual burden of every comptroller and, and everyone in the building, frankly, we all have to deal with it in one way or another. And, you know, you, you just carry it on your shoulders uh, and you try to make it better where you're standing. You know, uh, I, for instance, I had to, I was in charge of, <laughs> of handing out about a uh, hundred million dollars a year in the Warsaw Initiative program during the nineties, working closely with Comptroller and, and others. Uh, this was money to help uh, the, you know, the new democracies become NATO allies. Uh, and I had to deal with the system and it was okay. I mean, I, I went through a GAO investigation, you know, went through all these things that did fine and we got good relations with the Hill. You know, it's it's doing, what it is, frankly, is having good relations with people. Your counterparts in Comptroller, in the budget office, on the Hill, it's talking, explaining, trying to do the right thing, that you're going to have to deal with these systems. And as Dove says, you can make them more simple. You can, there's a lot of things that can be done, but everyone in the building plays a role. And this, and if you are a good colleague and you work hard and you go by the rules and you, et cetera, et cetera, you can make it work, but it is hard and you can't, you, you can complain about it if it makes you feel better, but you're going to have to deal with it. And if you deal with it in a congenial, uh, a, a, you, know, you know, a congenial way, you deal with it as colleagues and you work through the system, you can actually make it happen. That's been my experience. Uh, Chris, your, your um, sense on, on the reforms in the process writ large. So w with no disrespect to the folks that worked on this, because they're doing the Lord's work, I, I was really underwhelmed. Um, I, I really was. I, I was kind of hoping for, I, I knew that there would be different levels of recommendations. I, I was hoping that there would be more of a call to move away from this industrial um, system of doing the budget and really getting to a data-driven um, analytics focused way of doing it. And, and I think really, I mean, this is the latest example of a Department of Defense that has not fully embraced data-driven decision-making. And until they do that across the portfolio, uh, you're going to have to do the things. It's going to be people related. It's going to rely on the little lady in white shoes running from office to office or the 04 and 05 working in the service related bullpens, crunching numbers late into the night, which is a horribly uh, time inefficient and wasteful process. Not to not to mention the, the back and forth between uh, the building and, and the Congress. So until we get to that data driven um, approach, I, I think you're going to be nibbling at the edges. The analogy that I gave you is, I mean, you, you know, you have a massive tumor growing inside a, a patient uh, until you cut that tumor out, you, you know, you're going to be nibbling on the edges. So this was more chemotherapy. It was more radiation. Uh, and I apologize for those that are cancer survivors, but uh, that I use this analogy, but that's the only analogy that I could think of. I mean, we're, we're sort of going to shrink the problem, but the problem is going to continue to grow until you take a completely different 
uh, approach um, and, and get away from the, the, the waste of staff calories, the waste of time. Uh, we talk about everything being time critical and that we need to speed things up. Um, I, I wonder if it's chicken or egg. If, you, if, if the budget process was, was more time considerate and more uh, sped up, would that drive everything else? Or do you have to change everything else and that'll drive the, the budget process to be more time considerate? So just a few thoughts on that. But I am looking forward to hearing from, uh, from Bob Hale as I am uh, you know enjoy hearing from Dove on this because they've been in the trenches and they live it. Uh, Dove, last word on this before we go to Ukraine and Asia and the like. I can understand Chris's frustration. Uh, I think Jim makes a very strong point. You can work within the system, but the system does have to change. Uh, I hope that Bob Hale, who uh, I have said often on this program is probably the most capable comptroller that I've ever uh, encountered um, uh, in my 40 odd years in this business. Uh, I hope Bob uh, is ready to go beyond just these interim recommendations and recall the just interim. But one point I want to pick up on what Chris said. One of the things that's really bad inside the department is when you have what's called a cut drill. When the work word comes down from the E-ring that we've got to cut money. And what then happens is a year and a half of work and all the documentation and all the meetings with millions of people sitting around and dozing off if they're, they're sitting against the wall and all that goes right down the drain because you've got two days or one day even to make all kinds of cuts. And of course, that is not the way to do business. And so I'm hoping, I haven't really seen that in the list of recommendations, but it may be worth asking Bob what they think ought to be done about that, because it also goes to the whole question of how does this schedule work? Right. How do we get to the kind of goal that Chris is rightly, I think, talking about, which is data-driven decisions in a time frame when, as I said, uh, we're talking about high technology developments that already are being uh, manifested on the battlefield in Ukraine, and that are going far faster than the current PPPE system allows for. Uh, and we see this, right, where the cut drill uh, suddenly drops uh, a priority item uh, from uh, one of the military services uh, that happened with the, uh, you know, the advanced uh, engine uh, for the Air Force. And I had a lot of people asking, wait a minute, so the U.S. Air Force can't develop a new uh, combat aircraft engine that it may need uh, because of an arbitrary drop in budget that that knocked a priority off. So I completely agree with you, right? I mean, people work hard for years to try to get things done. And then all of a sudden, because of a prioritization number next to something and an arbitrary cut, uh, thing, things get uh, blasted off the list. Um, but but Cabago, well, just, just one more point on that. Sure. It, it all, as, as we all know, it comes down to politics. The cut drill comes because the SECDEF comes off the hill uh, he realizes that, that the budget isn't going to go and that there's three things that the Hill is really pissed off about. Uh, and one is cutting out a weapon system. The other is whatever it might be. He comes back to the building or she come back to the building and they put the word out. We're going to have to cut. Oh, God, I've, I've been subject to that so many times. We're going to have to cut $100 million out of this. Uh, and so I think no matter what we do in terms of new systems, uh, right. data-driven, uh, you know, AI, whatever it might be that we put into this thing, at the end of the day, a, a handful of Congress people on the Hill say, 
sect up, you're going to have to cut this, and you got the cut drill going. No matter what data might say, no matter what AI might say, the politics of the moment drive the cut drill. And you, as Dove said, you a year and a half work goes down the drain in just a minute. Uh, Chris, uh, last word on this uh, before we uh, go uh, and get your bite on uh, one other question. Go ahead. The only thing I would say is I think the data part of it would make those drills more efficient. They would open up decision space for leaders and we would actually know where the money is um, at the the decision level uh, several clicks down from OSD so that they could be more helpful in those drills, whether it's for uh, the administration or whether it's for the Congress. Uh, I mean, again, it is a laborious process as both Dove and um, Jim know. And if you could make that process more efficient, more quick, I think the decision space would be opened up greatly. That would be great. That would be good. As, as you've, uh, Chris, uh, many times observed, and our mutual friend Mike Cadenazzi has pointed this out as well, right? I mean, do it with a keyboard, not with stubby pencils, and and have an alert uh, mechanism that that brings, you know, br- that surfaces like, hey, wait a minute, here's the, you know, knock-on uh, implications of some of these decisions. Let me just, uh, I have to parenthetically ask, because Dove, uh, you have been on the record, and Jim, uh, you guys are frequent enough on the program as regulars to have talked about the Tuberville uh, holds, uh, you know, now there are blank pictures. Pictures at the entrance of the Pentagon on the wall uh, at every entrance, right? I mean, there's all the leadership portraits and the Army, Navy, uh, and Marine Corps uh, pictures for chiefs are covered up because now uh, the vices uh, are acting, even though all the vices have been named as, uh, uh, you know, and, and sort of the effects and the impacts on readiness and everybody's been talking about it. But Chris, you have a slightly uh, different view, and I want to get your uh, sense on that before we go on to the rest of the conversation. I don't see this as a uh, Republican versus Democrat issue. I, I very much see it as an executive versus legislative branch issue, a separation of powers issue. Um, and, and I really feel like the administration should be approaching it in, in that regard. If we believe that readiness is being um, affected, which I have my doubts on. I, I mean, you, you know, I, I was part of the uh, the drill that, you know, told everybody the sky was falling in 2013 with sequestration. I told everybody every year when we were going to have a CR that we were going to be less ready. And the reality was we made it work. And I very much believe that whether it's Lisa Franchetti in the Navy or Eric Smith in the Marines, they are going to make it work. If we believe that the long-term impact will be um, will, will be uh, detrimental to military readiness and to the morale of the force, then the administration needs to do something to exert um, executive power and executive authority. You know, we are allowing this to happen, and 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 I think if they instead of whining about it, instead of putting black pictures uh, over the faces of chiefs, I, I think that they need to sort of force the Congress to do something about it. If you're willing to go to court over, um, you know, student loan payments and you're willing to go to court over, you know, other political issues uh, to exert executive power, then why not do it in the name of the military? And why not force the Congress to turn on itself and take away this privilege? And that's really what it is. It isn't a law. It's a privilege, right? As Michael and others have said. So I'm kind of frustrated with the PR game that the administration is playing. And I think that they do more harm long term to the relationship between the executive and legislative branches by not being more forceful. Let me let me jump in here. Um, Sure. I think there is I think there's a solution. Uh, And I agree with uh, Chris, the administration shouldn't just be standing there and wringing its hands, which is what it's been doing. 
uh, there's clearly a solution, at least with respect to the top players. You know, it's really up to Schumer. Schumer can decide if he wanted to and work this out with Tuberville uh, or, or even without Tuberville that he would hold a vote on, say, the top 10 or 15 positions. It's not going to solve the problem. It's not going to help the other 100, 285 families that don't know where they're going to go and where the kids are going to go to school. But it would deal with the leadership. And you wouldn't have the empty spaces when you enter the Pentagon and look for the pictures. Schumer has not done that. And I think he could. And I think that the administration, a Democratic administration, ought to be working with the Democratic majority leader, who, by the way, will get the support of McConnell anyway, uh, to come up with a number that he that Schumer can work in. Let them work all night to get these guys through, but let them get the top 20 or 25 or whatever through, and then you'll have the leadership of all the services. This is not happening. And I think partly it's Schumer to blame and partly it's the administration to blame. I agree. Um, just to just to jump in on, on this, sure. I agree. And, and Chris, I think I agree about your point about it not being a very good PR game, but I, I think it's another example of the administration not playing a good political game on the Hill. Mm-hmm. I, I just think, you know, this thing, uh, well, look, it's a Republican problem. Let's let them deal with it or whatever it is. You know, OK, I've got that. But the, but, you know, at some point, the administration has got to rise above game playing and flipping it on the other guy and the politics of it and say, look, for the good of the country, we got to cut the deal. And what Dove is saying is it is a, a way out. If, if the administration and Schumer agree to play it. But if they're going to hide behind this, you know, well, nothing's going to happen. Let's just let this play out. The Republicans are going to look bad. They got to solve it. You know, that's that's OK for a few weeks. But for God's sake, uh, I wish they would rise above the, the, the petty politics and, and try to begin to work on this problem. I, I want to shift uh, gears and uh, go to Ukraine and that we are going to do a bit of a lightning round on this because uh, we are uh, winding uh, down on uh, time. I just want to give a reminder to the audience to check out our weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our very own Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello uh, and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters uh, each week. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space and our air power podcast that I co-host with our very own uh, J.J. Gertler, that's uh, sponsored by GE Aerospace. Um, uh, so th- there is, uh, you know, Jim, uh, you mentioned uh, the uh, the Intel uh, report. I think it uh, leaked. Uh, I can't remember if it was in the Times or the Post, uh, you know, that this concern that the Ukrainians are not achieving their objectives. Uh, it is a rehash, uh, I think, as you uh, noted to us in our uh, little chat group as we prepare for the show each week, uh, stuff that had surfaced uh, earlier Um it looks like the administration is uh, still uh, supporting uh, cleared F-16 uh, training so the Danes and others can uh, go ahead and start doing it. Unfortunately, those airplanes aren't going to show up. It looks like the Ukrainians are making some tangible battlefield gains. It looks like the uh, Russians are, are facing some um, some steep uh, challenges. Is, is anything accomplished with leaks like this, or is this just the fact that Washington has just not adjusted to the new reality that actually loose lips sink ships and it actually undermines a very important ally who's in an existential battle i just want to quickly go around the horn on this from from your standpoint planned leak or not dove your sense and then uh chris uh yours 
Well, I think uh, just from my side, uh, Washington is full of loose lips uh, and uh, that will never change. Uh, so I, I think I think that's 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 part of this. I think in this article, I'm not sure why it was written when I read it. It, it looked like, uh, you know, that the, the piece that was uh, cited uh, in one part of the article was an assessment. It's an intel assessment. Uh, just saying that they that the Ukraine was not going to be able to reach some of their goals, and and I think that assessment is you know, a, a pretty old. It was part of a package of stuff that that young uh, Air Force uh, NCO put into uh, on the internet. So, you know, I so I I think there might have been uh, the article might have been driven by a couple of uh, interviews with some intel people, uh, so so called intel people off the record. Uh, so, I mean, it did have a smell of, of something that had, was a planned leak. And I'll leave that to Dove. I know Dove has some views on that. I Just because Intel people, you know, th th that's Intel people don't do that kind of thing on the whole. <laughs> if, if those kinds of leaks come out of the, the, the NSC or maybe, uh, you know, the, the higher levels of the Intel community, that's the political pointy level. I mean, it's but it's usually for a reason. You know, they're trying to prepare the public for something. So you'll have a leak here, a leak there, trial balloon here. Uh, so this article, I, I think, uh, didn't say anything new. It points out to this problem that there's this unrealistic expectation about this uh, this offensive, uh, and uh, and it's frustrating, certainly to to me and to the Ukraine, I'm sure as well, that that uh, there's just not this understanding of how these things can go. Uh, and uh, and again, it it calls for political leadership by Biden and other people to tell everyone, please. You know, if you're going to, you know, if you're going to be tracking this, get smart about how these things go and don't think this is a Hollywood script that we're following. Uh, Dove, uh, your sense. And then, uh, Chris, I've got a follow up question for you. Go ahead. These kinds of leaks tend not to come from lower level people. Number one. Number two, uh, Jim is right. This was out there months ago. But then the question is, why is it there now? And why is it there now when the Ukrainians actually look like they're making some progress? What worries me is that, uh, as Jim Muse has said, this, this undercurrent, there are those in the administration, and I suspect higher up, uh, who are recognizing that they've got to focus on China, uh, particularly because of China's current recession. Nobody expected that two or three years ago or even last year. Um, and what that might mean for Taiwan. Uh, and so there are those who feel that we ought to start telling Mr. Zelensky it's time to negotiate. And the best way to make that argument is to leak stuff that says uh, you guys are not going to be able to pull off this offensive to the extent you want to. Uh, I worry that this is the case. I worry that um, this leak did not just come, as I say, from lower levels, but that's got somebody's blessing from at, at some higher up level. And uh, given this administration's quite frankly penchant for cutting deals, like with Iran, uh, which is getting a lot of criticism, and maybe we'll talk about that later on today, uh, I worry that there may be, may be something more than simply rehashing what was leaked months ago. And, and you wrote in the Hill uh, today, making uh, a very uh, robust case why we should be uh, staying the course uh, in uh, uh, Ukraine. Chris, let me bring you into this, right? I mean, you've seen how leaks uh, get or orchestrated. First, about whether or not this is an organized leak or, or frankly, a reporter who needed to write a story 
and you know and 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 found something interesting from a source uh, that advances that state of play. I mean, unfortunately, there are a lot of people in the ecosystem, and they're not necessarily altogether that senior uh, that are handling kind of sensitive information that that could uh, get a story out. But more broadly, you know, you were uh, working for a boss who tried to get his uh, John uh, Richardson, who was uh, chief of naval operations, who was frustrated with the leaks coming from some of his senior most officers on the record uh, most of the time and urged them to be a little bit more cautious. And that was interpreted as just shut up. We're in a new geostrategic environment. Talk to us about this specific instance and whether or not you think it was a, a structured planned uh, leak for messaging purposes, but more broadly, sort of the nuance that that officials have to strike to get their subordinates to actually be more responsible because loose lips do sh- uh, sink ships. So two parts uh, on the first, you know, whether this was coordinated or not, I, I don't want to be over nuanced, but um, because of the clunkiness, I didn't get the sense that this was an administration driven planned leak. But I do think that you were starting to see splintering within the administration. And so it, it was likely one element, you know, what came to mind for me was like DIA or somebody in the intelligence community that has a direct connection to the Defense Department, um, because we've heard for months that DOD is very much looking at their watch. Uh, they understand the importance of supporting Ukraine. They understand the, of what this means, but they are really anxious to get ready for the China conflict and to be better focused on the China conflict. And I think that, you know, you're going to see more of these leaks or more of these rehashing of leaks and helping reporters write this story from the the DOD world as they get nervous that we're missing an opportunity to prepare for China. In terms of the the broader communication environment, I I agree with you. I, I did work for John Richardson, who was very concerned that the line between unclass and class information was very much blurred. And that while leaders were sharing at the time unclassed information, that when you paired that with what our adversaries or potential adversaries were stealing from us in the class, uh, the classified environment, that it was really helping them connect the dots. And so he asked them to be more thoughtful about the type of information that they share at conferences, not to stop conversations with the industry, not to stop conversations with the media, but to be more thoughtful that we weren't giving our adversaries information that they could use against us. Now, because Washington and because the government sometimes isn't as nuanced and isn't as thoughtful as they should be, uh, many people took that as a gag order. Many people took that as, hey, we shouldn't say anything. And so therefore missed the important uh, opportunity to conduct outreach and to talk about the good things and the things that they should be uh, sharing with the public versus, uh, y- you know, information that could be used against the spy or adversary. So we've talked about it many times, the communication environment, whether it's involving Ukraine, China, pick any other country, we're now, you have to be thoughtful. You have to think about what you share. You have to think about how this information could be used uh, against you. And if you're not, then you're probably not ready for prime time from a leadership standpoint. Uh, and and unfortunately, it was boiled down to, oh, uh, you know, a secrecy obsessed submariner is getting us all to shut up. And, and I, I uh, you know, firsthand know that that wasn't the case. And certainly that wasn't the case uh, and the message uh, that was coming from him in, in actual fact. Um, uh, let me uh, let's qu- quickly move on to Ukraine, because I want to get to Asia as well. And, and we've got to get to Iran. And, and I'm going to ask everybody to be uh, short and crisp uh, in uh, their answers, because I've been very bad at managing our time. Uh, 
uh, so far, but there is a, a lot that we've had to discuss. Uh, Jim, uh, Ukraine is making progress in its uh, offensive. Uh, Russia uh, last week pulled over a ship uh, shooting across its bow. Uh, it, you know, it, it has said that uh, ships would be uh, targeted. Uh, on the other hand, it has allowed some ships to get through, including a Ukrainian uh, vessel. Uh, Moscow, however, has been targeting Ukrainian grain facilities, uh, not just in Odessa, but also on the other side of the Danube. Uh, it has uh, entered Bulgarian uh, waters to harass uh, a Turkish freighter. Uh, the Russians have been operating inside Bulgaria's uh, exclusive economic zone since July, complicating Bucharest's uh, ability to be able to, excuse me, uh, Sofia's ability uh, to uh, uh, explore its offshore oil fields, according to Defense Minister. Mr. Todor uh, uh, Tagarev. Um, today, the Washington Post is reporting that Russia has tried to recruit operatives in Poland to destroy arms shipments. How does the alliance need to respond, uh, especially to violations of its territorial waters? Well, I mean, that's a, that's a really important question. And, and I'd just like to start off by saying how many times either myself as an individual or a number of us in Washington have been beating the drums about the importance of the Black Sea uh, and begging the administration to do something in terms of a, some kind of Black Sea strategy. We even got legislation passed from the Hill. Uh, and when I was in the government, uh, I was pushing for all kinds of, of naval aspects of the Black Sea and nothing, nothing got traction. Now, here we are, as you're pointing out, Vago, uh, We've got uh, all kinds of things happening on the Black Sea, and we're not really prepared to handle it. And part of that is to the politics of the Black Sea, dealing with Turkey. I won't even get into that to save time. But if you look at it, and, and you bring in what you were saying about Poland, but also Belarus and Wagner and uh, the Swaki Gap and, and Lithuania, uh, Poland, the theater of operations, if you will, the line of, of crisis uh, is all the way from the Baltic Sea down to the Black Sea including both of those seas. Um, and that's stretching everybody out. And so what should NATO be doing? Well, um, you know, NATO is hampered by Article 5 in a lot of ways because NATO as a military organization in terms of taking action, it's a defensive organization. So it's hard to be proactive. Uh, but, there, but we have been in the past and we put troops, as you know, NATO forces into the Baltic, uh, I mean, into the, uh, yeah, to the Baltic nations. I think NATO is going to have to do something like that for the Black Sea as well. Um, it's going to be hard to do that. Turkey is going to be very difficult, but whether it's the Black Sea, the Eastern Mediterranean, we're going to have to show, at least show some force up there. Uh, and uh, so in the interest of time, I'll just throw that out. But, um, but this is something that the alliance is going to have to deal with and come up with ways to aid allies along the line. That doesn't mean uh, waiting for Article 5, but, and it doesn't necessarily mean provoking the Russians, but we've got to do a bit more than we're doing now. Uh, I again, uh, we've been talking about the show and I've advocated a naval task force uh, in that uh, area. And I think that if the alliance doesn't stand up to what the Russians are doing and to enforce its borders, this is exactly the thing that, you know, Russia is very good at. Right. Uh, you're not taking it seriously here. Why would you take it here? I penetrated your border here. Uh, and, right. and you just, you know, just just as right. we were in Soviet times, we weren't going to stand up for it. And we. We're very aggressive uh, sometimes, uh, including shouldering incidents uh, to, uh, you know, you can't do you can't insist on freedom of navigation in the Taiwan Strait or elsewhere and then say, well, but we're not going to enforce freedom of navigation or enforce our borders uh, in in the Black Sea. That's very problematic. But let me just ask you one other question. Um, you know, I mean, 
Uh, finally, the White House is okay with Denmark uh, and other F-16 operators training the Ukrainians. Unfortunately, that decision is w- way late. Um, Germany looks like it's going to be sending Taurus missiles, uh, or at least there's some optimism that that will happen. Um, ATACMS is still on the table, and the Swiss, after having gotten a very good start, are getting sort of back to uh, shielding Russians, Russian assets, and, and, and the like. We're, what's the next step here? Is the administration going to be clearing ATACMS or not? And do we need to be getting tougher on Switzerland? Well, I, I think uh, on Switzerland, uh, I, don't, I think uh, we can call them out as we're doing now, as you're doing now. Uh, we, can, we can do all that kind of thing. But the Swiss are a hard bunch. <laughs> you know, they have a track record during World War II and other places to be not so uh, easy to push around. So I'm not sure it's worth our time doing that. But we should definitely call them out. That's for sure. But in terms of attackums, um, you know, what else can we do uh, to push the administration to releasing those? Uh, and and I, you know, this show has had a steady drumbeat, and I'm hoping maybe something comes going to come off the hill along those lines. I thought I read somewhere that the, the hill, uh, some of the Republicans were saying, you know, no bill unless we have some attackums on it, you know, that kind of thing. On the F-16s. Uh, uh, you know, we're only going to go as fast as we can go. I'm hoping that the training isn't going to be as long as uh, predicted. And we have found that to be the case uh, with uh, Ukraine in the past. We said, look, it's going to take them six months to learn this and it's three months. And I'm hoping that we will see something similar. But, we, you know, we, I'm hoping someone is getting the aircraft ready to go. It's more than training. Um, it's also bed down there in Ukraine. <laughs> I'm hoping that they're at least trying to get some airfields and runways right. and this type of thing ready for that. So there's a lot ahead, and I just, I just, it's, it's a, it is a tragedy that we don't have F-16s over the head of those guys digging those mines out. Instead, they are there, um, vulnerable to a Russian air attack, and it's just, it's a pity. It is, uh, it, it really, it's a, it's, it's just a tragedy. Uh, and I just want to give a shout out to General uh, Dave Deptula, uh, retired General uh, Deptula, who is the dean of the Mitchell Institute, and he. You know, in in March and April uh, of uh, 22 was saying the importance of managing to get air power over there to change this uh, dynamic. Dove, uh, uh, really uh, quickly, your take. And I know, Chris, you've got uh, a word you want to say on this as as well. Go ahead, Dove. Well, um, obviously, uh, like Jim, I have pressed for ages that we speed up uh, our deliveries to uh, Ukraine. And I want to point out that there's been a major development over this past week in terms of Russia's uh, economic situation. Um, The ruble has hit a 17-year, a 17-month low. It used to be a ruble was worth a dollar. Now it's worth just over a penny. Uh, The Russians raised their interest rate by 350 basis points percent. It's 12 percent. Their economy is in trouble. And even though the price of oil has risen because they cut this kind of cut rate deal with China, they're selling oil at a much cheaper price to China. Uh, They're trying to renegotiate with India. They've got problems. And so the question then becomes, with that sort of difficulty and the fact that that's affecting the Russian people, they're not going to have a revolution. But it's another factor weakening Putin. And this is exactly the time when we should do what what Jim, what all of us on this program have said, which is accelerate the support to Ukraine, because 
Putin is on his hind legs right now, economically and to uh, a far greater extent than before militarily. And that's uh, not and even to mention Prigozhin still running around uh, and right. operating Wagner Group in Africa. Um, I should uh, point out that the Pentagon today uh, announced that there are half a million uh, casualties uh, in this war. And so the sooner uh, it's uh, ended or achieved some form of uh, definitive conclusion, uh, the uh, better. Chris, you had one point you wanted to bring in before we go quickly to Asia and Iran. Yeah, I, I do want to just add to what Jim said. I mean, you know, he rightly, I think, laments the strategic situation in the Black Sea. But I do think that because of the leadership of Jim and the people that worked for him and the successive administrations over the last 15 to 20 years, you do have a lot of options in the Black Sea. I mean, we have spent a lot of time building partnership capacity, uh, you know, in Romania, in Bulgaria, so that should you decide to do something and and call upon these nations to, you know, whether it's to convoy uh, grain or to play a tougher role, they are much more capable now um, than they would have been had this conflict come, you know, in the in the early 2000s. And I, I just, as, as somebody that focuses on the naval side, I, I just think they deserve uh, credit for that. I mean, we, we do have a lot more operational and tactical options should that strategy be hashed out. Uh, it's it's a strategic uh, decision. Uh, if the Russians knock down a global hawk, you don't back up from that station. You have to operate, uh, continue to operate forward, right? And we do have some indication that we actually move that uh, predator station a little bit farther uh, away from them, uh, which uh, I, do, I don't know if that's uh, that decision currently has changed, but I know that in the immediate aftermath of uh, that uh, collision, uh, we moved a, a little bit farther back. Um, Dove, uh, really quickly, uh, any new point uh, to make? You know, you brought up, uh, in, in fairness, you've been focused on uh, the fractures in the Chinese economy and the evergreen uh, issue. We now have another real estate bubble that's bursting. Um, you know, I would commend to folks, uh, you know, my favorite uh, publication is The Economist. Uh, terrific uh, story there about sort of the disillusionment going on more broadly uh, in uh, China among its uh, youth. Um, you know, what are the implications of that bubble? Uh, because one of the things that we've talked about is that, that authoritarian nations become you know, when they become more unstable, they become more unpredictable and they can miscalculate. Uh, and if you look at it, the, the situation in Russia could prove uh, problematic, uh, which the White House clearly is paying attention to. Just like uh, with uh, Xi, uh, it becomes more unpredictable when the president of the United States is, is meeting with uh, Prime Minister uh, Fumio Kishida of Japan and South Korea's President uh, Yoon uh, Sokyol. It's a landmark meeting that's happening at, at Camp David. And yet the Chinese are getting more unstable. And oh, by the way, uh, Vice President Lai is visiting, you know, going through the United States uh, to Paraguay, as we discussed last week. How do we need to be thinking strategically about where we are right now? Well, I think the administration's uh, meeting, the, the Biden meeting at Camp David, which, by the way, is the first he's had um, with uh, the leaders of Japan and South Korea, uh, tells you uh, how the administration and in particular uh, Kurt Campbell, who's a genius at this, quite frankly, uh, is thinking about how to deal with the, the, the Chinese economic situation. Uh, real estate is a major, major factor in the Chinese economy. Uh, the fact that yet again, you're having a, uh, a huge real estate bubble bursting um, 
does mean, as you pointed out, that uh, Mr. Xi's behavior vis-a-vis Taiwan is a major wild card. Uh, and so there has to be a message to Xi that however much he may uh, be inclined to divert public attention, economic troubles to uh, an attack on Taiwan, it's going to be very costly. Uh, we know that the three countries, uh, are uh, US, Japan, Korea, have agreed on missile defense. They've agreed on more, tr- uh, more exercises. And quite frankly, I remember in the 90s going to South Korea and hearing from South Koreans that the ordinary South Koreans, that the biggest threat to the country wasn't North Korea, it was, it was Japan. This has changed. And so this is a major message to Xi. Look, you may think that you can divert people from the troubles that you have created with your extreme left-wing Maoist type uh, economic management, but guess what? It's not gonna be as simple as you think. And the fact that South Korea, Japan, and the United States are working ever so closely together not to mention Australia, not to mention the EU. Um, be careful what you think about. Uh, Chris, uh, one word from you before we go to Dove on uh, Israel and Iran before we wrap. Go ahead. No, I mean, I, I think that, you know, all the things that Dove just talked about, I, I think the folks in the in the Pentagon and, you know, out in Indo-PACOM are, as they continue to prepare for different contingencies, they look at all this and, you, you know, the, the question is, is that, does the mounting um, economic trouble and does on, on one side versus the mounting, um, you know, alliance building and, uh, you know, friends and ally uh, creation, does that do those uh, work against each other? Do they serve as a um, do they serve as a deterrent for China or do they serve as a um, reminder that China has a ticking clock and that G needs to move on Taiwan right away. I mean, this is what the folks that aren't the China experts, um, I think they're trying to wrap their mind around it as they're learning, right? So, I mean, this this problem, as Dove talked about, has been focused on for so many years and months by those that understand and, and can almost predict Chinese movements. Now, as this becomes more of a mainstream issue for the military and for decision makers, they're trying to make sense of all of this. So, Watching this closely um, will be very important for kind of the next level of decision makers and the next level of military leaders uh, as they keep one eye on Ukraine and one eye on uh, uh, China and then try to figure out what to do with Iran. And I know you and Dove are going to talk about that next. Uh, Dove, uh, Israel and especially uh, Iran, which you've been tracking very closely. Well, on Israel, there are two major stories this week. One is that there's more and more uh, of something more than a rumor now that the uh, ultra-Orthodox parties are telling Netanyahu don't push ahead with judicial review because there's a growing opposition to us, the ultra-Orthodox, for what we want to do, which is to get a a kind of permanent exemption for our students. Um, That uh, is really one aspect of the big news out of Israel, but maybe even bigger news is that the United States gave Israel permission to sell Arrow to the Germans. Uh, And that's important for two reasons. One, because the Germans are going to be spending $3 billion on missile defense against guess who? And and it's not Iran, it's Russia. And secondly, because the United States was ready to let Israel make that sale. On Iran, um, you know, there's really the same old, same old. The Iranians... uh, 
are we are still trying to get the United States to finalize its agreement uh, on uh, the release of uh, these uh, hostages and to get the six billion dollars freed up. But the fundamental problem with Iran stays. And of course, you now have the the issue that uh, how many forces can we retain in the Middle East uh, while at the very same time, uh, the United States uh, is has to be concerned about both China and Russia. And lastly, last but not at all least, uh, there's still a push to get Saudi to uh, work out some arrangement with Israel and join the uh, Abraham Accords. But the Saudis, uh, the, the price the Saudis are asking for is now being paralleled by the price the Israelis are asking for. They too seem right. to be asking some kind of security guarantee. And I don't know that the Congress, and by the way, security guarantee, uh, if it's a treaty, uh, has to pass the Senate. I'm not sure the Senate's ready to do that. I'm not sure it's ready to do it for Saudi Arabia. I'm not even sure it's ready to do that for Israel. Dove, uh, thanks so very much. Thank you, uh, all of you, for joining us. Really appreciate it. I hope you all have a great weekend uh, and a great week and look forward to having you back on again uh, next week. Uh, thanks very much to the audience and a very special thanks to Bell for their generous sponsorship that makes this program possible. We look forward to bringing you the Business Roundtable uh, this Sunday as we do uh, every week. Uh, thanks very much again. Hope everybody has a great weekend and a great day. Uh, and we'll see you again soon. Thanks very much.